The year is 1985, and everyone I know has a big butt. But let's talk about your big butt. The movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And welcome to Unspooled. Oh, wow, Amy, I thought you were going to come in and, and save me there. I, I was really trying to turn it up, give it a little <laughs> bit more. A little bit more. Yeah, that's it. Uh, hey, everybody, I am Paul Shear, as always, joined uh, by my amazing co host, Amy Nicholson. We are talking about the best films ever made. Last week, we had to drop all of our plans because of the passing of actor, comedian, writer, producer. Paul Rubens. Um, he passed away, most notably known as Pee Wee Herman, but someone who I think culturally has affected, I mean, everybody in, in my age range, right? I mean, it, this is in the community that I circle with. This was, this was a very big deal. Yeah, this was definitely a shock. And it was a shock to realize that we have not only not covered this movie, but we've never covered a Tim Burton movie. It, and I'm so happy that we are actually getting to do this. And I'm so sad about the circumstances. You know, right now, as people are eulogizing what Pee-wee meant to them, we thought it might be interesting to focus on a movie that I think changed a lot of things in Hollywood, launched amazing careers, and is the reason why we have the ability or freedom to be weird. I, I I do believe that Pee Wee Herman is one of the architects of the weird, the embracing of the weird of our culture. You know, Weird Al is another, but Pee Wee Herman is somebody that is an unlikely hero, a nerd at the time of Rambo. A nerd at the time of Rambo. I love that. And what makes this even more interesting is this movie, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, was not supposed to be a success. It was a long shot. It was a director that no one wanted to hire, 26-year-old Tim Burton. It was a performer who was viewed as being simply too weird. It was a composer who never, ever composed music for a film. And Danny Elfman, and you put these three together, and you get this magic, this magic of every single one of them supporting each other, but each of them doing their own unique thing. I'm very excited to get into this magic. And I will say, dealing with the news when it happened, probably one of the best things we got to do was like plunge back into the world of Pee Wee Herman. And and I got to learn things about the person who was such a huge figure in my life that I hadn't known before. I also want to say really fast before I jump into this, by the way, uh, if you're listening to this and you live near LA, you should come hang out with me and Paul because we are honoring your pick that you picked for us as a film that you loved. There Will Be Blood, that we celebrated last year in our five-year anniversary spectacular. That's right. By screening it on a huge, huge, huge screen. So we can watch people drink milkshakes on big screens. We can watch that silent intro on a big screen again. Oh, that's going to be great. We're doing it at the Arrow Theater as part of this festival that they're having, Friend of the Fest, where a bunch of hosts from a bunch of podcasts are going to get to introduce films that they love. A lot of our friends are going to be there. Very cool. And so, yeah, if you're in town, August, Monday, the 28th, 
Come at 7.30 to the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. There's some great donuts around the corner. Oh, got to get the donuts there. Oh, I love the Aero Theater. And join us at the American Cinematheque for There Will Be Blood. It's going to be really fun. I love that. And if you're hearing this show right now when it just comes out, um, How Did This Get Made is on the road. We're around the country. Just go to hdtgm.com if you want to come out and see me on the East Coast. I believe that right now we're in uh, New York. We'll be in New Jersey and Philadelphia and D.C. this weekend. Um, But Amy, you know what? If you do come to either one of those shows, uh, make sure when you buy your ticket, you tell them, Large Marge sent you. (laughs) And now, in honor of Pee Wee, I pity the fool who doesn't unspool it. (laughs) The year is 1985, and the character Paul Rubens has been playing for six years on stage is finally going to bike into the stratosphere just like E.T. Now, we'll get into the origins of Pee Wee Herman in a little bit, but for now, just know that he is an ageless man in a gray suit with a whiplash temperament. When he's happy, he flings his body into the air with glee. When he's mad, he sulks and he rages. Pee-wee has been a 10-minute groundling sketch. Then he turned that into a full-on stage show. He's done bit parts in movies. He's done lots of game shows. He's played Carnegie Hall. He recorded a special on HBO. And now he's got a movie. And even though it is his first starring role in a feature and everyone is telling him, Boy, you are so lucky for a weird alt-comic. Do not screw this up. 33-year-old Paul Rubens is trying to keep as much control over his character as possible. He's hired his longtime friends, Phil Hartman and Michael Verhall, to co-write the script. He's filled lots of the little parts with more of his longtime friends. He's rejected the studio's pick for director and found his own, another first-timer named Tim Burton. And he's even picked out his composer, Danny Elfman of Oingo Boingo, who has never done a movie before on this scale. And Danny seems pretty nervous about it. But, you know, today, in retrospect, looking back in the year of our Lord right now, we have full faith that things are going to work out for Tim and Danny. The movie is called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's got a simple plot. Pee-wee lives alone in a house filled with super cool stuff. One morning, his favorite possession, his custom 1947 Schwinn Racer, is stolen. To get it back, Pee-wee must accept help from a cross-section of America, ex-cons, waitresses, hobos, bikers, truck-driving ghosts, and Hollywood studio bosses. Paul Rubens is a hard worker and a perfectionist, and you can see him putting his whole brain, body, and soul literally on screen every single time he jumps for joy or scowls with anger. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is released on August 9th, 1985 limited to start because his own studio does not have a ton of faith in this movie, but the movie only costs $7 million. It makes back almost six times that. And one year later, Pee-wee gets his own Saturday morning show. He becomes inspirational, foundational for a whole generation of weird kids. And then in 1991, bad stuff happens. And then in 2002, even more bad stuff happens. We will get into that as well, but for a long time, Paul himself refuses to talk about those scandals because they all hurt him too much. Only in 2010, nearly 20 years after Pee-wee went off the air, did Rubens finally say, quote, I can't dissect it. If I did, I would get angry. I have never let myself feel you were wronged. I will not let anyone turn me into a victim. It is probably better not to tap into the anger I have about what happened to me, end quote. I am touching on all of that briefly right now because you can hear that suppressed anger echoing 
in the number one song that was on the airwaves in August 9th, 1985, about somebody who gives their all and they're just angry. It is Tears for Fears and Shout. Amy, we are at the precipice of the Grand Canyon to try to break down Pee-wee's big adventure, Paul Rubens, Pee-wee Herman. The effect of Pee-wee Herman on our culture is a task you could make an entire podcast about. And I don't think today will be the end-all, be-all, but I do want to touch on so many things. And I think after Paul Rubens passed away, I've been reading a lot of pieces about him. And it articulated something that I've never really put together, which is Pee Wee Herman is neither gay or straight. He's neither child or adult. He's neither rich nor poor. He pretty much is labelless. But at the same time, that makes him relatable to everyone. And I don't think that I've ever seen that so fully articulated and understood why this character resonates with so many people and why it continued to resonate for decades after the original birth of it. I mean, I'm going to put on my ridiculous critic hat right now and say that those parameters that you are laying out, the wide and vastness, the unknowability of Pee-wee is captured really in his catchphrase. I know you are. But what am I? Whoa, Amy, that is, <laughs> wow. Alrighty, that was like, whew, we just went to philosophy class over <laughs> but here. But it is true. What is yes. what, what am I? What am I? And Pee Wee himself is a character who I would say reboots, that there isn't a lot of permanent Pee Wee lore. The, the Pee Wee in Pee Wee's Big Adventure is different from the Pee Wee in Pee Wee's Playhouse. And he's different from the Pee Wee in the movie he made with Joe Manganiello. That Pee Wee works in a diner and lives in a tiny town. That that Pee-wee has never left his town. He clearly is very clear that that Pee-wee has never gone on an adventure. He's kind of almost like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible that way, where there is almost very little coherent character from movie to movie. There is just this icon. Well, it's so interesting you say that because my first introduction to Pee-wee came through my dad in watching his HBO special, which was decidedly more adult than anything else He did. The character stayed roughly the same, but the content was dirtier. It felt like a kid playing in the parameters of like boobs. You know what I'm saying? Like that idea of like, ooh, like what what's sex? Like it it just had something where there were double entendres that I didn't get. Yeah, he's putting mirrors on his shoes to look up girls' skirts. Yes. It's a little perverted, right? And and I get that it's like little boy perverted where it's like, yes. you know, they don't quite know what they're talking about, but they know that it's naughty. And that was really interesting to me because it captured something that felt relatable because at 1981, I'm, I'm young. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like five years old or whatever I am at that age. 
And I'm seeing something that feels to me like Mr. Rogers, but also has this element of not being fully safe, a little bit dangerous. And I think when we talk about Pee Wee Herman, especially in the last few weeks, as people have reflected on his life, you keep on hearing this term of subversion. He was a very subversive character. He was subversive, but he was also a popular character. And I think that that's something that you don't really see that much, you know, of a character that can really pull people together, but also flip your expectations. The only other character I can kind of think of that's similar to that is Borat. Oh, that's interesting. I was thinking he's got a little bit of Wonka in him too, that there's like a Venn diagram where Pee-wee and Wonka touch, where they're like malevolent, overgrown adult children. But but yeah, I mean, like to your point, like not only is Pee-wee in that original special a little bit, a little bit horny without knowing what horny is, I guess. When you're like, I'm young and I want to kiss a girl, almost like Ken in the Barbie movie. I want Barbie, but I have no genitals. And what do I want to do with her? I don't really know, but can I spend the night anyways? I mean, he's also doing stuff like smoking with Cap and Carl, with Phil Hartman's Cap and Carl. Gonna smoke, eh? Yeah, what of it? Did I light it for you? No. Why? Because. Because why? Because I said so. Why did you say so? Because. Because why? Just because, no! Take a deep breath. I mean, they kind of sound like they're talking about weed right here. Deeper. <laughs> Deeper still. How do you feel? And that's not kid-like either. I mean, my first PB was definitely the TV show before the movie, I think. Yeah, TV show before the movie. And I remember the moment that I realized... As a much older person, like definitely high school, maybe even college, how unusual a show like Pee Wee Herman was. Because when you're a kid and you're putting Pee Wee Herman on on Saturday morning, you're just like, yeah, this is what Saturday morning is. I am a child. This is my first really exposure to Saturday morning programming, to a character like this. And then when you get older, you can watch it through like the lens of, no, this is a weird underground alt-comedian artist doing a kid's show unlike how kids' movies had been up until that point. You know, because if you're watching kids' movies in the early 80s, you're watching, what, like, Transformers, you're watching, you know, Care Bears, you're watching Smurfs. In a way, it's almost like going to the movie theater today. It's like superheroes and stuff that's made to sell toys and, like, adaptations of existing IP, you know, Star Wars and Hulk Hogan and whatever. And then, like, Pee-wee shows up coming just off of this movie And it's new and it's bold and it's creative. And I did not appreciate it because I just thought like, that's what it is. That doesn't mean I didn't love it, but I didn't know how rare it was. He pulls back to a generation that was also weird because Pee Wee Herman now, I realize, also shares some DNA with Banana Splits. You remember that show? It was like a live action playhouse show. Like that Sid and Marty Croft, there were these weirder kids morning shows that were way before our time. But there was this energy of, even going back to The Muppet Show, puppets and humans interacting in this world where there wasn't that much oversight, so no one really questioned it. So whether or not you like Banana Splits or whether or not you like The Muppet Show, they did get away with kind of blurring a line. I think that my sensibility as a kid was formed by watching The Muppet Show and Pee Wee Herman which are shows that are not, I think this is your point, geared towards me and only me. Like, 
Scooby-Doo is not geared towards the entire family, right? Or Transformers is not geared towards the entire family. I'm talking, of course, of Transformers, a cartoon show. But those shows were, they could work on two levels. Like your parents could enjoy Pee-wee, you could enjoy Pee-wee, and they were able to sneak in some weird stuff. And they had this level of like unpredictability. You know that Pee-wee's Playhouse is literally a show where anything could happen. It It doesn't have a formula. It's not like, oh, here I am, Optimus Prime. Some bad guys are going to come and I will beat and dominate them. And the end. And the universe is saved. Right. Or, you know, it was unpredictable. And I feel like they always talk about how there's a predictability element that's actually good for children's entertainment, that they know how long things will be, that they know that Mr. Rogers is going to take off his sweater and he's going to take off his shoes. And there's a, a familiarity that has a real strength. And this is a show that just cuts against that. You don't know what's going to happen. Suddenly the floor is talking. And there's like this fear that Rubens himself kind of tapped into when he was a little kid and he got invited to be in the peanut gallery of Howdy Doody because that that's his generation, Howdy Doody. Right. And he's sitting there at like four years old and he said it was terrifying. He was really scared. Nobody looked like how they did on TV. It was all cameras and junk everywhere. He couldn't see anything. And I think there's that element of like uncertainty that he kind of channeled into the playhouse. Absolutely. In the 60s and 70s, there was this idea of like psychedelia. Right. We're watching weird stuff and it's kind of because we're exploring, expanding our mind and we're really embracing that kind of entertainment. And then there are these inherently weird things that are going on, like Howdy Doody is weird. It's a you know, it's bizarre a little bit, but it's not like psychedelia. And then we get into this generation of people who were influenced by that, like people who are like looking at the city of Marty Croft and looking at Howdy Doody and saying, well, what can I create that's an amalgam of these two things that isn't put together by just being stoned? You know, I think that people always ask you when you do comedies, like, oh, what were you smoking when you came up with that? Like <laughs> nothing. No, we yeah. weren't like, like I've been asked that so many times. Like, what were you, what was, what you guys, I'd like to have what you guys are smoking in that writer's room. And look, I can't speak for all writers rooms, but I, I've never experienced that, right? Like that idea where, you know, people are just blasted. The last thing you want to do is sit down with a typewriter. But I do feel like Pee Wee Herman doesn't feel like a character that was created by drugs, but it feels like someone who was influenced by that culture, who then is making it almost weirder because it's not influenced by drugs. It's like, this is the fun house that we've created. Like, Howdy Doody is weird. Let me take a step back and look at that. Look at these talking flowers and sit in Marty Croft. That's bizarre. Look at these, you know, creatures from, you know, Banana Splits. Like, it looks and it feels like everything that we're familiar with. And at the same time, it's making fun. It's a meta take on it that's also a kid show. Well, yeah. I mean, so then let's kind of jump back and like look at the origins of Pee-wee. I mean, so what we really have is you have like Paul Rubens being curious about being an actor, showing up in California, going to Cal Arts, going to Cal Arts with like David Hasselhoff and, and Katie Seagal, thinking maybe he wants to be a dramatic actor. Then he switches over and he goes to the Groundlings. That's where he meets Phil Hartman and John Paragon. John Paragon, of course, is going to become zombie um, friends for a very long time. And he is told that he needs to start developing character work. And he's like getting really stymied by this idea of like, who will my character be now that I am funny? And so one of the guys at the Groundlings tells him about this comedian that he used to know, who was this like 18-year-old kid. Um, 
his name was like just Jeff and he would show up at the comedy store, but he wasn't allowed to perform at the comedy store because he was only 18 and the liquor laws wouldn't let him get on stage. So he would hang out at the comedy store backstage until two o'clock in the morning. And then when the bar was closed, they would let him get up on stage, this guy, just Jeff. And just Jeff had all of these prop gags and they never worked. And he would try to do all these props and nothing worked and nothing was that funny. And so this guy who had seen just Jeff was telling Paul Rubens all about this. And Paul Rubens was like, I could take the root of that character and I can build something up from that. You know, I'm going to take the worst comic with these props and see what I can do. And, you know, one of the things he adds to the character first is the voice of Pee Wee Herman. And he says that he got the voice because when he was 17 and he was pursuing being more of like a dramatic actor in Florida, he played a teenage kid in this play called Life with Father. I don't know if you've heard about Life with Father. It's basically like a bunch of vignettes about this dad who's like a stockbroker in the late 1800s. And these are all these funny things that happen with his family. It is not very well known today, but like in the 70s, it actually had set the record for being the longest running non-musical. It's been like beat out by like current musicals. Like it got beat out finally by like Fiddler on the Roof. It is now number 18 on the list of like longest running things of all time. As a pop quiz, I was kind of curious. Do you know what the longest running show is of all time on Broadway? Well, now I'm thinking about it and I, I feel like it must be The Mousetrap, right? That's that's England. Oh, England. Okay. Then Phantom? It is Phantom. Good job. Good I job. I know my theater, Amy. You do. To round out the top five, Chicago is number two. Lion King is number three. Wicked is number four. Cats is number five. But wait on the list. Life with Father is still the longest running non-musical Of all time. And so he was in that. He played a twerpy kid. He took that voice and he stuck it into Pee Wee. And then this character kind of took off and he was trying to get it noticed on things like, well, here he is actually on the dating game. He's Bachelor number two. Bachelor number two. I can't stand it when a guy's too easy. How are you going to make things tough for me? Well, for one thing, I'm going to wear a bodysuit underneath my clothes. And then people are like coming to see him at the Groundlings, seeing this like hour show that he's doing. And he has kind of this like calculated way of making the character seem like a superstar, which is that, you know, the Groundlings Theater, this is like right when I started on Melrose, it was brand new in that little Melrose location, which is pretty small. It's like 99 seats. He would give away all of the seats except for 20. He would like comp everything. He would comp like 79 seats or something in the theater and then only put 20 tickets up for sale. And that way the show would always sell out. And so there'd always be like lines waiting to get in. And it seemed like this like impossible popular show because they just kept giving away free tickets to everybody. But that is what got him a ton of attention. And, you know, then he starts showing up as sort of versions of himself, like in the Cheech and Chong movie right here. Excuse me, sir. Yeah. What do you want? Uh, why don't you give him his luggage, man? Because he owes $262.50, and in another five minutes, there'll be an additional $37.50. Yeah, well, you know, like, why don't you just give him his luggage, you know, and then we'll come back later and give you the bread. Why don't you forget life? Hey, listen, you hey, little... Let go of me! Hey, give him his fucking okay. luggage, you why little Why don't asshole. you let go of me? I know fucking. you are, but what am I? Yeah? Mine. Listen, hey, give him his luggage, go, you little... But wait, are you saying that he never sold out a show? He just conned HBO into thinking that he was a popular comedian? (laughs) I mean, I think when they finally moved the show to, it might have been the Roxy here in town. I think then it got popular, popular. But yeah, it was was like 
pretty clever the way that they built it up. Like his role models at this time are like Andy Kaufman, people that you didn't know if they were real or a put on. He was also on the gong show like all the time. He was always on the gong show. The gong show is where the tequila dance originated as well. Like that was (laughs) where it was performed for the first time. And when I think back about these shows, the gong show and the dating game, they really felt like fun game shows and the fact that they let people come on and just do bits. Have you ever seen anybody do tequila at karaoke? Because I have this friend named Watson and tequila is always his karaoke song. And it is in the right hands. It is one of the like upper tier karaoke songs I've ever seen. Because basically what happens is it's just long, long, long dancing, long, long, long gyrating. And then the suspense builds, which is when it finally becomes time to say tequila, will the timing be perfect or will you be so distracted dancing that you forget? And and that tension actually controls a room. It's really powerful. Whoa. All right. Well, this is, I mean, <laughs> that's something you have to practice at home. Uh, I guess to get it totally right. And and I have a karaoke machine, so I will do that. What is worse than missing the tequila? Well, you need it. You know, thinking about this movie and this rise of this character, he gets a movie. And now... They won't let him have his director. They are kind of forcing him into doing like a remake of Pollyanna, right? That was the original idea of Big Adventure. It was supposed to just be Pollyanna where he comes to a small town. Everyone falls in love with him. You know, that's the end of the day. Like that's the that's the story. Yeah, he was into that because like Pollyanna is his favorite movie. Okay. But the scripts weren't really... Working, you know, like I think he felt that nobody understood the character and what made the character work, including him, honestly. Like, because he'll kind of say when people talk to him about the character, he's like, When people ask me about Pee Wee, I don't have a clue, I don't dissect it for myself. He's like, I love it when other people do, but it takes some of the fun out of the work when I have to start figuring out how Pee Wee Herman works. But I think he knows when Pee Wee Herman doesn't work, and I think he was very protective of any executives. Uh, the wrong director making Pee Wee Herman something else because Pee Wee Herman can only exist in like a really specific atmosphere and tone. Right. And I think that when you look at this movie, you're getting a lot of very strong, specific voices. We'll talk about Tim Burton in a second, but I want to talk about the other collaborator that Paul Rubens had. Phil Hartman is one of the three writers who wrote this film. And, you know, he has a very small part in the end of the movie as one of the reporters at the drive-in premiere. It seems to me that the magic of Pee Wee Herman, this is its peak in film form, and the TV show is a different version of Pee Wee, which is great and fun. But this is probably the best subversive, interesting take on Pee Wee. Like, from a creative, visual, stylistic, and also tone level, this movie, I think, pulls it off in every way. It seems like Paul Rubens is constantly in flux with who he's working with and who he's not working with and kind of coming back and going away. Are you getting that in your research? I am, yeah. And a lot of it seems to be kind of personal, kind of this like we are all part of the groundlings together being improvisers, a lot of us. And then when success happens to people, 
it was pretty difficult. Like, I think there were a lot of tensions, especially at the beginning. Like, as part of the Huey narrative is that Paul Rubens had been had been a person who did a ton of characters on stage when he was at the Groundlings. And people at the time are like, Peeva wasn't even his best one. He had a ton of great people. And then he was told that he was like next in line for Saturday Night Live. Like basically he said that the writers of Saturday Night Live were like, come to New York already. Just get your apartment. You're in. You're in for the show. And then he lost his slot to Gilbert Gottfried. And it sent Paul Rubens into kind of this like tailspin. And the only way he came out of it was being like, I'm going to devote myself to Pee Wee. When the Pee Wee Herman movie comes out, then he does Saturday Night Live that year. He gets to actually guest host in it. And he's like really stoked. But he insists on something kind of kind of strange for Saturday Night Live, especially at the time. He was like, I want to bring my own writers. So he brings Phil Hartman to help him write his week of, of skits for Saturday Night Live. And because of that experience, Phil Hartman was like, actually, I really like this Saturday Night Live vibe. And so he auditions that year and gets it. And when Hartman gets Saturday Night Live, the first year that the Pee Wee show, the TV show starts, it really causes a lot of tension. And Rubens feels like he's being betrayed by his best friend who's leaving him to do Saturday Night Live. And that's why Phil Hartman is only in a little bit of the first season. I assume that when we talk about Groundlings at this stage, it's like it is a little bit like maybe being there in Ground Zero at UCB the way that you were. You know, here's a bunch of people who are like called wild, crazy equals, and you don't know where this theater, this troupe will go yet. And then when it starts going places and not hitting everybody equally, that's got to be rough. Yeah, I think that that feeling of we are all creating shows together is different than we are all helping lift up one of us. Because you look at somebody like Phil Hartman, who's incredibly talented and incredibly funny. And I could see that he doesn't want to just be a writer and a supporting character, a side supporting character to Paul Rubens, regardless of how great that relationship is. And I can also see how the tensions would form. And I'm also thinking about this idea because when he hosted Saturday Night Live, didn't he host it as Pee-wee? Yeah, like he he basically was never seen out of costume as Pee-wee for the whole 10 years that this was like a thing. And this is what I think is phenomenal and so weird about this time because I want to just briefly talk about Andrew Dice Clay, who's roughly a contemporary of Paul Rubens, who comes out with this Dice Man character, you know, years later, but it's like we were in this zone where we fell in love with characters. Like there were comics and, and improvisers like Andrew Dice Clay's Dice Man. That was a character. He did many characters. He did impressions. People are like, oh, he's so much funnier than Dice Man. But Dice Man is the thing that took off. And then you can't take the leather jacket off. You can't take anything off. And then you get encased in a character. And I imagine that's incredibly frustrating because Paul Rubens definitely towards the later half of his career is popping up and doing great performances, you know, whether it's 30 Rock or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like anytime you'd see him pop up, you're excited to see him and he's doing great characters. But it took him like two decades to be able to break the mold of just being Pee Wee Herman, something that going back to what we said about Borat, Sasha really doesn't have, you know, and I think it's a, a really hard thing, especially in this time, to be more than one thing. You are Pee Wee Herman. We will only see you as Pee Wee Herman. And then you probably get nervous. Like, I don't want people to see me as Paul Rubens because if they see me as Paul Rubens, maybe they won't like me. And I think that this is why Paul Rubens does go through these, and I don't even want to use this term, but I will just for 
the sake of brevity, like gets canceled for a brief moment because he wouldn't do anything overtly bad. It was a shock because we view him like Mr. Rogers. We view him like a child. So to see a child doing something that's deviant or dirty, it's like, no. Well, yeah. I mean, like if you go to Hollywood Boulevard, the star that he has on the Walk of Fame says Pee Wee Herman. It doesn't say Paul Rubens. Wow. And like, to your point, like that's, that's a lot of what he said. He said, he thinks like, this is a quote from him from interview that he thinks that's why his arrest was so scandalous. He said, quote, I had never been seen out of character before. I wasn't a social butterfly who was regularly out and about. There were no photos of Paul Rubens anywhere. Suddenly I went straight from being just Pee Wee Herman to that scary mugshot. And let's face it. My mugshot was demonic and raggedy Charles Mantony. Somebody called it. He also said later that he thinks the mugshot was like the coolest he's ever looked, which is why he like kind of brought back that hair. I think it was for what Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. But, you know, it was only actually researching for this episode that I even realized what he was even watching. Like, I just knew as a child, like he did something bad, Uh, but he was watching a movie called Catalina 50 Tiger Shark. Not like even something that sounds horribly scandalous. It's like this series of like Hawaii Five O parody porn movies. Their That's titles hilarious. are all great. Catalina Five O White Coral Blue Death, Catalina Five O Treasure Island, Catalina Five O Sabotage, Catalina Five O Undercover. I mean, they're just it's like kind of a a dorky detective porn series that like has a lot of double entendres about dicks. Oh, you know, look at that dick over there. Look at that private dick. I mean, you could almost argue that you could just see a thing like that to be corny. Here he was a guy who had had so many friends in like the comedy late night world. Then this happens. And by the way, just the idea of like three undercover officers in Florida being like, this is our priority. So stupid. You know, I've never had anything stolen in my life that a cop has ever bothered to find a car, (laughs) nothing. But there's three of them here staking out a porn theater. Sure. But this seems like a simple bust, right? It seems like one of those things where it's like, oh, we got nothing. We got to go in. And in Sarasota, they're just going in and, and just trolling in their minds, like, deviance, right? Like just some like, eh, let's go in here and get what we get. And if they can say, essentially all these guys were jerking off in the theater, they get a bunch of misdemeanors, but they just happen to scoop up a giant television child star. It, he said it was really upset to, it, it really upset him that the headline said things like Pee Wee Herman arrested. He was like, Pee Wee Herman was not arrested. I was arrested. You know, he was like, put any tarnish you want on me But, like, don't put it on my character. My character isn't the guy. My character is, like, for kids. But I also think at that moment when he got arrested, at least in my memory of it, his career seemed to be over. It seemed like Pee Wee Herman's flash in the pan had fizzled out. And it was like, oh, my gosh, remember that guy? (laughs) Now he's doing this. It wasn't at the height of his popularity. It wasn't at the height of anything. It wasn't like he, like, that's why I was reticent to use the term canceled, because he wasn't canceled. He already wasn't really working, right? Yeah, like he had, he was over being Pee Wee Herman at that point. Like he'd exactly. actually told this, the, he was like, we did five seasons. I'm done now. Like we're going to be in syndication. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to figure out who I am. And so like, that's why his hair was already long because they wrapped shooting forever ago. And I mean, now when we look back, it kind of seems quaint old timey anyways. That's why I thought yes. when Fred Willard was arrested. I was like, that's so old school because it was definitely past internet porn. Like, right. Aww. He couldn't get to the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, that's kind of sweet. <laughs> Anyone that saw the movie where he was on his red bicycle uh, 
with the flat top. That was not the image projected on this particular evening. It's my understanding he now has a goatee, a mustache, and his hair is much longer. He had a cap on, and I guess he was dressed as any normal person going to a, a theater for an afternoon of theater enjoyment. Police also say three other men were also arrested on a similar charge of indecent exposure, a misdemeanor crime that could mean up to 60 days in jail and a $500 fine for the comedian. Rubens, who grew up in Sarasota, refused to comment on the charges, but his attorney Dan Danheiser told the Sarasota Herald Tribune Sunday, quote, he does a lot of things with kids over the world and his career will be over when that story runs. I mean, that shows how innocent I am, I guess, in some way. I've never been to one of those. Maybe it's not sweet, but in my imagination. It's a quaint way to jerk off. It's like you're making an appointment to jerk off. You're like, you know what? I need to do this. Let me go make a plan. I'll drive out to a location. I'm going to go, you know, get comfortable, watch the movie, not just fast forward to a moment. You're paying performers for their work. You know, not even a sex club. It's just a movie theater. I I, I think there's yeah. something very quaint about I mean, it. But like Paul Rubens said later, one of the weirder things about it was that strangers would come up to him afterwards all the time and say, by the way, Pee Wee, I jerk off constantly. No big deal. Like they're trying to cheer him up. And he's like, "I." it's weird to me that I am the person that people come up to and share that with. All right. So let's go back to the movie. I know we talked about the idea of it being Pee Wee as Pollyanna. But then he's on the Warner Brothers lot trying to figure this story out. He's never written a screenplay before. And to just help him get around the lot, everybody at Warner Brothers has bicycles. They give Paul Rubens a bicycle. This becomes the impetus for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He is like, no, no, this could be the movie. What if it's all about my bicycle? And they toss out the Pollyanna script. They buy... Sid Field's book on how to write a screenplay. And they literally follow Sid Field's book to a T, so much so that Pee Wee's Big Adventure is taught in screenwriting classes because it's a 90 page script. It's a 90 minute movie, or maybe it's 93 minutes. It is perfectly timed to the act structure of Sid Field, where it's like on page 30, we're into the second act. And at this point, we're over here. Like it's a perfect road movie. It's just little vignettes tied to a very simple plot. Well, yeah, but you know what I think is so interesting about it that ties into what we were just talking about, about this idea of being a team and then having to be a loner is like, I think that what this movie is really about underneath the whole bicycle structure is this idea of like suddenly Pee Wee Herman is a person standing alone in this movie in a way that he is not in his other films or TV shows. The live show that is for HBO and his Saturday morning show, Pee Wee is a person who is surrounded by friends who show up at his house all the time. And he lives in a house surrounded by friends who talk to him all the time. He's a person who I think lives a pretty social life. Even if you're just talking to your chair and your mailman, you're still talking to your chair and your mailman and your cowboy friend who comes over. But that Pee-wee from those two shows is not this Pee-wee. Like this Pee-wee I find very different because he wakes up in this kind of house that's magical to all sorts of kids, you know, where he's like living in those Rube Goldberg contraptions, kind of like what we were talking about in Back to the Future, which also came out this year. And what struck me watching this again was that He's very alone. He lives in a house that's nothing but objects, plastic objects. And in this version of Pee-wee, nothing talks to him. Like he has a scene really early on where he's talking to his pancakes. 
And his pancakes are not talking back. Good morning, Pee-wee. Morning, Mr. Breakfast. <laughs> Can I have some Mr. Teeth cereal? Okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, pity the poor fool. Don't eat my cereal. <laughs> I find this Pee-wee to be actually a much more unhealthy Pee-wee than the other Pee-wees. And I think that's part of the interesting thing about this movie is he's like a guy who kind of reminds me of somebody who lives in a house surrounded by Funkos. You know, like, he is a person in this film who only cares about stuff. He cares about his objects. And the thing he cares about most is his bicycle. But he does not care about people. Well, I think you're right. The The arc of this movie is about Pee-wee finding community and family, which is why when it ends... He is surrounded by the friends that he has made. Exactly. But in the beginning, he has none. And I think that you look at that first scene where he's talking to Dottie, the first scene where he's talking to Dottie. And, you know, he tells Dottie he can't get involved with her because he's a loner. Look, Dottie, I like you. Like? I like you! That's the thing, I like you too. Dottie! There's a lot of things about me you don't know anything about, Dottie. Things you wouldn't understand. Things you couldn't understand. Things you shouldn't understand. I don't understand. You don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner, Dottie. A rebel. And I think when you see that scene, the audience is laughing at that because look at this nerd. He's not a loner. He's a fucking nerd. You know, on some level. right? But he is alone. but But he is a loner. He is alone. And I think that he does state the premise. And it's played for comedic effect, but it is true. You know, he's separated from people. The only person that he really has a connection to is this kid, Francis, his next door neighbor, or not next door neighbor, but this rival. And I think that Francis is a child where Pee Wee is alone living in a house. Francis is in a house with his dad and taking a bath. Like there's something that's more infantile about Francis oh, than there is about Pee Wee. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So, all right. So maybe that's, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. And yes, he has his neighbor next door who closes his window when he waters his lawn. He seems to have a nice relationship with them. He has a great relationship with the magic store owner, but they're very much um, small talky. It's transactional. Transactional. It's transactional. Like, his whole relationship with the magic shop owner is transactional. The guy shows him cool stuff, he rejects it. You improve squirting flour. Fake blood. Or is it? Ugh, no. Super stink ball. Has some. Shrunken head? No. Regular size? Mm, no. No! <laughs> Okay. His relationship with Francis is like definitely not friendship. They hate each other. It's not for sale, Francis. My father says everything's negotiable. Pee wee. I wouldn't sell my bike for all the money in the world. Not for a hundred billion million trillion dollars. Then you're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? 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 Infinity. No, I'm not. You are. No way. Knock it off. Cut it out. 
Oh, shut up, Pee-wee. Why don't you make me? Why don't you make me? Because I don't make monkeys. I just train them. Oh, Pee-wee, listen to reason. That was actually one of the conflicts that Paul Rubens and Tim Burton had on set, was that Burton thought that scene was too long, and Rubens thought it was too short. He wanted it to go on even, even longer. He has this air of being better than everyone, right? Because he feels like he is complete. He's got his bike, he's got his stuff, he's got his perfect house, and any person in that house would wreck the perfection of it. It's a Rube Goldberg. He lives in a Rube Goldberg world. Everything is built on working perfectly, but people don't work like that. And I think that that is, if we're going deeper into the psychology of of maybe Paul Rubens and Pee-wee, that's a really interesting thing because I can see how that mentality, that kind of perseverance, that tenacity, the tenacity that gets the studio to hire 26-year-old Tim Burton. Tim Burton, who had only directed a short called Frankenweenie before this, which I think most of you know, but he forced the studio to get this guy in to direct. And I think it's that ability to be so focused, so laser-locked and not really taking in anyone else's uh, needs that maybe made Pee-wee Herman a huge character. It's a person who buys out 70 seats and sells, you know, 20. But it also is the person that will push people away. And he pushes away Dottie, who is fantastic. I love Dottie. But Dottie is throwing herself at him, and that's played by E.G. Daly, just like throwing herself at him throughout the movie and he's just pushing away connection you know yes she may want a romantic connection but he's pushing away any sort of real connection he really is i mean when his bike is stolen we see that like he has the ability to bring the community together to help him find it but he is unable to even appreciate that the community is willing to help and he bores them all to death. He goes on tangents. He finally, when he realizes that after three hours, they're checking out and they don't care as much anymore, he goes on like a rage. I think I could get Chuck to give you a good break on one of the bikes in the shop. I don't want some other crappy bike. Pee listen, if you want my help. I don't want your help. I don't need the police and I don't need you. I don't need anybody. He's pushing them away. Like he's, a really ungrateful character, which I find fascinating because he also yes. represents to me like innocence and joy. He's a guy who like, while brushing his teeth, makes brushing your teeth sound like the most fun thing in the world. My son came downstairs when I was watching it and he just started watching TV with me. And it was in that opening scene. He goes, He's not talking to anyone. Why is he just making noises? And I think he, he was laughing really hard, but it was funny because he has to make those noises. I, I don't know if you ever feel like this, like when you're alone, like you may talk to yourself or, you know, there's all these ideas. Do you talk ideas. to yourself when you're alone? Yeah. Well, do you ever watch the show alone? Like the show alone, amazing show. Uh, I can talk about that forever, but you know, they set up these testimonials for themselves and you see them doing all this weird stuff. It's acting out things, doing things like, I find myself, even if I have to burp when I'm alone, I'll burp louder. It's like, I'm just acknowledging that I'm in the room, right? Like, you know, it's like, I'm here. And, and I feel like there is this thing about loneliness and not, not understanding the community that he has built. Like community serves him 
And I think at the end, he serves community. And I'm going to go one step further and say, like, this is why he's getting candy for everybody at the end. Like, you talk about that scene where he's boring people to death. That could be Paul Rubens looking at himself going, this is the way we're going to do Pee Wee. This is the way you're going to do this. You're going to get in a box. You're going to go over here. You're going to go here. And maybe that's also Phil Hartman and uh, Michael Varhol, like, who are also saying, yeah, that's kind of you. You're kind of a dick. Yeah. And being like, you know who talks like that? Dicks talk like that. Ex-convicts say they don't need anybody. I like you. I like you a lot. That's why I can't drag you into this. I'm bad, Pee-wee. Now, you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner. A rebel. Deja vu. Like, it's right here, like, under your nose. To be so alone, to be this, like, wonderful, charming person that people see from the outside can also include a lot of loneliness. And, I mean, to some of the detail work, like, Paul Rubens was open about later on in his life, when he was much, much older, he was diagnosed with OCD. And he was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And everyone around him was like, yes, Pee Wee. I'm sorry, yes, Paul, I should say. Yes, Paul, that makes a ton of sense. But what I find so fascinating is how obvious it is in this movie, how much he's trying to yell and scream and tell us that it's dangerous to live a life about objects and to live a life where he's so focused on on things that he actually doesn't even have dreams. Like to me, that's like the beauty of the scene he gets with Simone and the dinosaur is like, he's met a woman who seems like she's coming from some other indie movie completely. Some one of those millions of indie movies from the eighties and nineties about diner waitresses. And she's like, do you have any dreams? And basically he's like, no. Do you have any dreams? Yeah. I'm all alone. I'm rolling a big donut and the snake wearing no, a vest. No, no, not that kind of dream. I mean, a dream you dream about all the time. It keeps you going, dreaming about it, hoping it'll come true. Did you ever have a dream like that? To find my bike. He has never thought about a world outside of the immediate and his objects. And that's really chilling because it's also relatable. It's very relatable. You could just you could make that about money. You could make that about like I don't know, shoe collections. You could make it about anything. You start to see him open up in the first scene with the convict, when he picks the convict up, uh, you know, or the convict picks him up on the side of the road, that's uh, Mickey Morelli, played by Judd Oman. My goodness, that man has great bone structure. Oh, I love him. He looks a little bit like Jimmy Smits. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and and then this man, like you said, he tells him, no, I'm a loner. So now all of a sudden, I think the cool loner that he thinks he is is now judged, not judged, but now he actually sees what a real loner is. He really understands like, oh, to have it, pushed back at him. You're not that. I'm that. And then he makes this sacrifice. You know, he they dress up to fool the officers. Like, you know, and Pee-wee puts on this dress. And what I love about that scene is, you know, yes, it's to escape the cops. But there's a moment after that scene where they pull away. And the first thing that the convict does is he kind of pulls off his mustache and de-costumes. And Pee-wee stays in that costume. He's happy in that costume. And I think that that's, you know, again, going back to that idea of like, he is nothing and he is everything. And what is he? We don't know. But I love that idea that 
he can be happy with whatever he is. Like he's not waiting to burst out of a costume. There's something interesting about that too. I thought him still existing as this wife character when he doesn't need to anymore. Like what is that telling us about him? That he seems so content to have a role with someone else. And maybe it's community. Maybe it's a relationship. Like he had to do it to fit in. Like he knew that that was what he needed to do, but maybe in play acting, because everything that we've seen him do so far is play acting, whether it's with dinosaurs, whether it's with talking to Mr. T on the cereal box, pancakes, whatever it is. This is the first time he's like kind of playing with somebody else and, and maybe he's too much into the part. Maybe he got so into the part again, like Paul Rubens into the part of Pee Wee Herman. Like, is it, did he become this other thing for a moment? You know, is that the only way that Pee-wee knows how to connect is through being another character, something that he's not. Well, yeah, because you're right. In this scene, it's the first time that we've seen him be dependent on anybody. He finally gets a ride uh, with Mickey because he's been like standing out there trying to hitchhike forever, being very dependent on the kindness of strangers and getting as much kindness back from strangers as he's been giving out, you know, which is like none. He's living in an unhelpful world because, like, he's also not very helpful. You know, that Mickey picks him up means a lot. I mean, do you think Mickey's lying about the fact that he was arrested for cutting off a mattress tag? <laughs> I think so. But they can bond over the futility of the law that, like, they're both like, yeah, the law sucks. Pee-wee's like, yeah, they don't help me with my bike. They're too busy arresting people in theaters. When I was growing up, you were told, don't take candy from strangers. Don't talk to strangers. Don't get inside weird vans. Don't engage with the outside world. So if we take a step back and we go, what if Pee Wee Herman is a character that is built on those thoughts? And then we basically put him in a world. We take him out of the Americana that he lives in, the sweet mall, the giant magic shop, the sweet bike shop. And we put him in a world where everyone's a stranger. Everyone is mean and tough and scary. He's forced to interact and he learns every one of these scary people actually is really nice, except for one, the which is the uh, the boyfriend of the waitress. You know, but everyone treats him really well, and that's really subversive too. It's like, yeah, no, talk to strangers. Yeah, yeah, no, get in a Mack truck. Yeah, no, no, you go into a biker bar. You know, th- this idea that he is constantly going into danger, like it's directly what you wouldn't want your kids to do. Wait, that's true. Because you're right, he's not getting picked up by like a school bus of friendly cheerleaders or like a, a- farmer in a pickup truck like even one of the friendliest people he meets is somebody that parents would probably be like don't hang out with that person who's a hobo on a train he's like well i'm gonna sing with him until i'm bored with singing and he gets bored very fast then he jumps off the train but like yeah from person to person to person he's hanging out with the people we get warned about and it's interesting because you know he goes into that biker bar and he's dancing tequila And when you watch that scene, the bikers are actually not charmed by him for a minute. And when he goes into that bar, I mean, it's funny because like, yes, there's like that whole little bit of like, I say we kill him because he's knocked over all their bikes. They're not just randomly escalating it. You know, like he's going into a clubhouse. He's not allowed. Clubhouses are sacred things, as we will learn. Then he knocks over all their bikes because he, in this movie, frequently has disregard for anybody's bike who is not his Yes. You know, like knocks over a chain of other people's bikes. Right. He literally is on a mission to be like, why didn't people treat my bike with respect or whatever? You know, like he's also so myopic that he doesn't even see the bike as it crosses his path multiple times in the film. Exactly. 
And he does not treat other people's bikes with respect. Yes. And so that's when they're like, I say we kill him. And I want to play this clip just because like the biker mama who walks in is one of the people who was his best friend throughout his life. Cassandra Peterson. We know her as Elvira, but Cassandra Peterson, like one of his absolute closest friends. And this is the cameo that he gave her. I say we kill him. Yeah. I say we hang him. Then we kill him. Yeah. I say we stop him. Yeah. Then we tattoo him. Yeah. Then we hang him. Yeah. And then we kill him. Yeah. I say we let him go. No. I say you let me have him first. <laughs> but what I think is great is like, he's like, okay, okay, okay. Let me dance tequila. He's dancing tequila and the bikers are completely unimpressed until he starts doing destructive things and grabbing glasses and smashing them. When he escalates it to the language of a biker bar by getting more violent and destructive, suddenly he is embraced. You can hear it here when they start laughing. And I love that because it kind of taps into so many things we like about the character. Like, A, he's adaptable to the situation here. He's figuring out what works. But B, he does represent, I think, so much anarchy as a kid's figure. You know, he doesn't represent, hi, I'm Mr. Rogers and play by the rules. He Here he's like, break beers and people will be your friend. I mean, he is a dick. Right. Like yeah. he can be violent. He can be the like he's he contains multitudes, Amy. You know, like he's not just a sweet, kind guy. And, you know, the dance is really funny. We talked about how it originated on the gong show, but it's really off of like a dirty joke. You know, it's like you stick one thumb up your butt and then you put it in your mouth. I mean, he's not putting his thumb up his butt, but that's essentially the movement that you're watching there. Thumb I up think your I'm butt. missing where the joke is in there. They said it was a part of like a joke that he would do on stage, <laughs> which I feel like. There's probably a larger context too, but I, I guess think like we're just, missing a piece of the joke. Yeah, yeah, maybe he is very good at walking on his tiptoes, though. Like I thought those were stunt feet, but actually, when you watch the Gong Show, you realize no, he's just very good at being on his tiptoes. And if he was that good, you have to imagine the guy who played Jombie was even better. He actually is. You could see him do it too. <laughs> By the way, John Hargan actually died before Pee Wee died. And one of the touching things is that Cassandra Peterson, because they were really good friends. She and Paul Rubens designed his gravesome at Hollywood Forever. And they designed it as a box with Jombie on the inside. Oh, and so wow. it's really touching. I, I love stories about people who are creatives who become friends and stay friends forever. And this is the interesting thing about Paul Rubens is I think that he is an intensely private person. And, and now that he's gone, I, in many ways, I think he leaves us with many questions as we had when he was alive. And, I, and there's kind of something beautiful about them not being answered. Even when he was on Jimmy Kimmel to talk about his new movie, the, the one with Joe Manganiello, he, you know, was reticent to talk too much about where the inspiration for things came from. Like he said, oh yeah, Large Marge's hair was based on Don King. But is that a joke? Is it not a joke? We don't know. You know, we have to just talk about Tim Burton a little bit more here and say like, I do believe that this partnership with Tim Burton, I would have loved to see it continue, but he must have left a little bit of himself on Pee Wee because I do think that Pee Wee leans into the more bizarre weird, the the claymation, the the scary, the there's an element of Tim Burton that I think continues 
along with him through Pleiades Playhouse that I don't think he had in the 81 special. I wish I would have seen this partnership do another thing together because I really like how they pushed each other's limits. Like, it is a perfect collaboration between two very weird geniuses who grew up watching a lot of TV and having a lot of these influences of of pop culture on their own psyche. That's true. Like, I am fascinated by those generations who were raised on TV because it's like here and people a little bit older than them, like the first kind of generations to be raised with a box in your house that talk to you all the time. You know, we're a kid in like the 50s, 60s. That's new. You know, Burton is the person who adds like the creepy clowns and those dreams and stuff and like takes it to that more surreal level that I think works just so well in here. Well, because Tim Burton, I think, embraces this Americana, right? And weird in Americana. You know, Edward yeah, Scissorhands. Yeah, suburbs and Edward Scissorhands. Yes, there's something there. And his style kind of emerges here because it's everything that we see him revisit, you know? Uh, and we have a movie that looks like it's shot for no money, right? You know, obviously the opening starts, uh, you know, in France at the Tour de France. But you look at that and you go, oh, this was shot, like, I know where this was shot. This is like yeah. shot like outside of Santa Clarita. Like I know these mountains, you know. Um, yeah, they, nothing they has sh- ever looked less France <laughs> than yes. the France opening. You know, the the large Marge jump scare is like stop motion, which, you know, we've talked about like Nightmare Before Christmas and Corpse Bride, you know, the, these yeah. ideas... Like, and it I goes th- by very fast, too, which is striking. Like, in my memory, in my childhood memory, the large march stop motion was up there forever. Oh, that was but the scariest. But then when you watch it, it's like, boom. It just, it, it happens and it's done. And when they finally pulled the driver's body from the twisted, burning wreck, it looked like this. <laughs> yes, sir. That was the worst accident I ever seen. What I really loved on this rewatch was something I didn't notice before, which was Tim Burton's in this movie for a very split second, but he's one of the the muggers who jumps in Pee-wee's face on the rainy night. He's only there for as probably as large as that large Marge section. And he that's Tim Burton in the film. I love that he put himself in there and he looks unrecognizable in that moment. Yeah. That moment where Pee Wee hisses, I love. I communicate a lot with hisses, and and even that scene kind of looks like proto Batman. You're seeing like the dark and creepy, exaggerated streets and the shadows. Like you just get the sense that Tim Burton arrived like fully formed, and he's 26 when he makes this. Part of the story is that apparently, according to Warner Brothers, they had been offering him tons of movies because everybody knew he was going to be a big deal, and Tim Burton kept saying no to stuff. He just didn't think anything was good enough to do. And so when Paul Rubens was like, I really want the Frankenweenie guy, they told him that Tim Burton would almost certainly say no because he was the new darling. It's like pitching some random thing to like Ari Aster. Like Ari Aster is not going to make Transformer 7. But like they they finally found that partnership where they broke both of them in. And I find it fascinating that this is like the first Tim Burton movie we've done on the show. Because I don't count quite Nightmare Before Christmas, sort of. You can half count it. We no, can but it's different, it, right? But yeah. It's different. Yeah. He didn't direct it. Well, you know, the other thing about Burton that I love that I found out here was that he also was a big reason for the dinosaur influence in this movie. 
Tim Burton really has like a thing for dinosaurs and always wanted to get dinosaur, like he wanted to get those Cabazon dinosaurs on screen. And if you've ever driven out to Palm Springs, you will see them on the side of the road. I've stopped there. I've been up there with my kids. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, after Paul Rubens passed, uh, they did repaint uh, one of the dinosaurs in a, a peewee suit, which is amazing. I love that. I love the Cabazon dinosaurs between this movie and between The Wizard, the movie about oh, the, yeah. the video games. I thought the Cabazon dinosaurs were like the biggest landmark in the world. Uh, me too. And then when you go there and you see how uh, the state of disrepair that they're in, it's, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> were uh, they bought by creationists? Yes, they are. And there's like a little creative. Uh-huh. Like, I think, but they may now be back to something else. But I will say that what I love is that meeting of the minds going like, yes, all right, well, let's work together. And he's like, can we get some dinosaurs in here? And like, of course, like, you know, not that that was the only thing that he said, but the idea that they met there, like you can see a dinosaur influence throughout this entire thing. Even when, you know, we talk about uh, Lawrence in the, in his pool bathtub, still my favorite idea as a kid, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, his bathtub is so big. Right, but it is like Godzilla. It's yeah. it, this this idea of like creatures and the way that he puts creatures in and you know, whether it's like that nighttime scene where Pee-wee's eyes are going all over the place and we see for a moment with the uh, headlight um, goggles, like some stuffed and some live animals like in the woods. Like, cr- I mean, creatures. I think that creatures is something that, that Tim Burton embraces. Like, and that could be Edward Scissorhands is a creature. They're creatures. And I... And, I and think it that makes that's, sense for a guy who doesn't have a lot of human friends that there'd be yes. creatures everywhere. But then also he goes further. Like when he's running through the Warner Brothers lot, he literally interrupts like a black and white Godzilla movie shoot. You know, a thing that would never happen in 1985. Right. You're not making black and white Godzilla movies on two strings then. But like he clearly just wants to make that set and then run through it. I, I mean, it's the same impetus that makes him do like Ed Wood probably. Well, and I also think, you know, we talked earlier in the episode about how it is a kid show, but it's also poking fun at a kid show. And I think it was about finding that that perfect middle ground of what Pee Wee's is from the HBO show to the uh, the morning show. But this is another example of this is a movie, but a meta movie as well. It's a movie in which the character rides through all the movies and then the movie that we just watched becomes a movie. Like we see all these tropes, but they're not, the character never looks at the screen, right? They never, the character never pulls you out like that. Or when they do, it's like a joke. Like when he's playing the hotel clerk at the end of the movie, in the fake movie, and you see that Pee Wee, the actor, cannot stop looking at the camera. And doesn't know where to go. Yeah, and we see the artificiality of it, that the voice isn't even his voice, and that movies are all at some level fake. Mr. Herman, Mr. Herman, you have a telephone call at the front desk. And you also understand, like, the journey that it took to get here, right? Like, there's something about the triumph at the end that we got to watch the Paul Rubens, Tim Burton movie that they wanted to make while Pee Wee Herman is forced to watch a movie he doesn't even like based on his own life. He leaves before the movie's over. Because it's not him. It's not what he wanted to do. And it's clearly a dorky movie, but it is funny hearing like his catchphrases and his like obsessions reworked as though they could be cool. Well, here, when we have like this scene between like the fake him and the fake Dottie between James Brolin and Morgan Fairchild. Let's take a breather, Dottie. 
The X-1 needs to cool down. I'm a little overheated myself. Come on over here, Tito. What I think is so funny about the movie within a movie is that here it's like the bike has these nuclear codes and somehow the Soviets are involved. Well, the bike, by the way, is a motorcycle. It's a motorcycle. And it represents kind of how movies make everything sound bigger and more dramatic. If we don't get the bike, we won't get the nuclear codes or whatever. And this movie has held our attention just being about a bike. Like you don't need Soviets and spy gear and like hot makeouts and extra ninjas. Right. You don't need all the artificiality of like sexuality. You don't need all the coolness. Like what is cool? What is not cool? I mean, this is what the movie is also saying too. It's like Pee Wee Herman, you leave going Pee Wee Herman is cool. One of the first things that you see in the beginning of the movie is he checks in on his weight and he's 98 pounds, like the 98 pound weakling, right? That idea, that like very traditional idea, like this, what we just watch is a movie that you would never want to A, be like Pee Wee or, you know, Think of him as a hero. And I, I just love that he leaves during his own film. And he leaves as somebody. He doesn't leave by himself. He got everyone to pay attention to him. Whether or not him and Dottie go off in the sunset or whatever, who cares? But he does leave not by himself. He yeah. leaves as somebody. And, and we watch this journey of somebody, two people on a bike, two people who have sh- similar interests, whether they're friends, whether they're lovers, who cares? It's just... He found connection and he, and he now will always be supported by his friends and this community that he's built, not yeah. just a community that services him. In this metaverse Pee-wee timeline that gets rebooted then when like big top Pee-wee happens. Yes. Where he like is, there is no Dottie and he's engaged to somebody else, but he's like flirting, like flirting in ways that make it strange to watch. <laughs> I like it very much around here. It's very beautiful. So are you. Thank you. You're so sweet. I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> Say it, don't spray it. Stop it. Make me. Stop it. My face hurts. Killing me. Kiwi. That's my name, Mace. Don't wear it out. But then, like, you read interviews and you hear that Paul Rubens was like, no, I wanted to see if Pee Wee could could be weird and romantic in this way. Like he wanted that movie to have the longest kiss scene of all time to beat like records. I think the record was like two and a half minutes and he wanted to beat that record by kissing her for so long that I would break that record, which is just the opposite of whatever we think the Pee Wee template is. I think they wind up kissing for like 90 seconds. It is a very, very long time. But in a way, it kind of proves the point of this whole episode, which is that like, it's very hard to make a Pee Wee movie. Like it has to be within certain parameters and if you make the movie all wrong then you wind up with like two cool kids making out by a motorcycle it, it's not right you know and no wonder he walks away from his like film within a film at the end of this because to me the emotional climax of the film is not that that is the postscript the emotional climax is when like peewee gets his bike back he's biking away and he makes it seconds when he sees that a pet shop is on fire and he does the unthinkable he abandons his bike that he just got without even chaining it up, and he runs into a burning building to save other living animals. That is not the peewee that we met at the beginning of the film. And animals that he doesn't like. Yes. I mean, that's really, to me, He uh, yes, we see it multiple times, but basically at the end, he hits three or four beats of doing that. Of not wanting to touch the snakes in particular. And then when he finally does, like, there's so much drama about it, but, like, peewee doing something he hates. 
Pee-wee has never done something he hates, you feel like, before for somebody else's benefit. Even when like Simone the waitress is like, I'm going to go to France now and you inspired me. He's good at acting happy for her, but being happy for her bumps him out. You know, it's very hard for him to be genuinely selfless, which is, yeah, relatable. Like sometimes you have to practice being selfless, right? You have to practice doing the right thing. And here he just does it. Nobody's watching. He gets the snakes and he absolutely screams and faints. You know, at the premiere, he started talking to an executive who basically said we should do like an animated kids show about Pee-wee. He's like, what about live action? And that's where the the idea, the genesis of that idea started there. And thank God it did because Pee-wee could have been a flash in the pan. But that TV show put him in, and this goes back to what I was saying before, a format that we understood, a format that we get. It's Mr. Rogers. It's Sesame Street. It's a little bit of a game show with like the magic word. And all of a sudden... The parameters are on. We understand Pee-wee. We go back to all the things that are good and we don't change him and try to make him into a movie star, a sex symbol. I think when you look at that cast and that world, it's very much the HBO show as seen through the eyes of Pee-wee's big adventure and even just slightly toned down even a little bit more. And we get this like perfect version of Pee-wee. But we might not have gotten that if he thought to himself, no, I'm a movie star. I'm only doing Pee-wee movies now. And that's it. And that like his career was saved by the fact that he didn't have an ego about doing TV as well as his, as he's standing in front of a movie that yes, to your point was not wide released. It was released in like a 14 different States or territories and then grew and grew and grew and eventually made $41 million. I think most people in that moment would have so much confidence. It's like, no, I want to make movies that he understood that maybe the best thing to do was to just continue to do the stage show, the the version of the Pee-wee that he knew. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to call it selfless because that seems ridiculous. It's a job. But I love that his impetus was to do programming that could affect kids and raise up kids to be like weird, creative artists. Like that that excited him, that he could have an effect on kids week after week, which is something I think about a lot. Like I think we're in a period where we could really use more kids movies of a higher quality that are just about teaching you a moral lesson, but are, you know, like be good, be nice, but are about teaching you to think, to be creative, to be weird and to teach you all the things that I think Pee Wee does really subconsciously. Like I never really thought about it until now, how, how Pee Wee was a show that had so much diversity on it, just reflected. And that was like a really deliberate part on Paul Rubens's part that like he said that like when he grew up in in the South in Florida, that his very first year of high school was the first year of forced integration and forced busing. And so he was very aware of like race and inequality and tension. And so he made just a stance for CBS. He was like, we're going to make a show that is incredibly diverse and that, you know, if anything, it's going to be like more non-white than white, you know, which I think it actually is. And he was going to keep that up even behind the camera. Like, it's fascinating because you hear some of the actors who are on that set talking about it now. Like here, like Lawrence Fishburne talking about the crew that was behind the set. I have to say that the years that I worked on the Pee Wee Herman show on Pee Wee's Playhouse, the crews were the most diverse of all the crews I've ever worked with, which means there were more people of color 
behind the scenes, there were more women behind the scenes in non-traditional roles for women. I think it was probably the first time I ever encountered a woman working as a camera assistant or a focus puller. I mean, I was hearing like that he was maybe working on a project with the Safties about like taking Pee Wee in a darker direction, you know, going to a mental hospital, getting shock treatment, talking about what fame is like, you know, kind of grappling, I think, with a lot of the stuff that happened to him afterwards, you know, like what's fascinating is like back when even say like the, the 1991 thing happened, people were always on his side about it. The New York Times published all these letters to the editor kind of likening his arrest to like when booksellers canceled Oscar Wilde because he was convicted of indecency, which is just like being gay, you know, when they didn't want you to be gay. Uh, that like current affair took calls from callers and they said that people supported Paul Rubens nine to one. Even polls said that parents would still let their kids watch the show, but he had already decided to cancel it. Nobody had really known that. And then when CBS pulled the plug just on showing his reruns, people thought that it had canceled the show. But it wasn't. It was just like a weird coincidence. But all of these things combined to make it seem like worse things had happened. But I didn't realize that like people were even on his side back then. I don't know. It's complicated. Like he said that he heard that from like Christian Brando, Marlon Brando's son, that people like Marlon Brando thought that Pee Wee was a real person and that he didn't know there was an actor behind the person. And I think just this responsibility of the image, something he had taken so seriously. Like when he was Pee Wee Herman, people were trying to get him to do commercials for like chocolate and like, you know, sugar cereal. And he refused to do all of that. He was like, I would do a healthy cereal. And so he tried to develop a healthy cereal, but he said when test kids ate it, they didn't like it. So he was like, okay, fine. But like, I think he really felt the responsibility of Pee Wee. It's interesting. I, what it was so shocking to me when he passed was how old he was. I was like, what? Yeah, I didn't he's know he's that was old. 70. But he seems ageless, right? Yeah. Like I said it to my dad. I was like, you know, he's seventy. My dad's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, but like, I'm like you're, but you're seventy two. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, oh wow, like I didn't realize that like my dad and Pee Wee Herman are the same age. And that's you know, again, my own issue too. It's like, oh yeah, I see him as Pee Wee Herman. I get what Marlon Brando's saying. Like you, you see him as this ageless character. Yeah, yeah. Because you can find some clips of him very early on as Paul Rubens talking to people. But once Pee Wee becomes a thing, he only does press as Pee Wee. He only, like, I think he only promoted the first movie as Pee Wee. He only promoted Big Top as Pee Wee. So when he goes on Leno in 1999, that's the first time people had ever heard his real voice. And it sounds hard for him. I mean, listen to this. No, no, see, people want to know what you like, so you have to, you have to speak. Okay. No, that's very good. That, that's what we call a beginning. Okay, that's very good. That's very good. Uh, uh, now, that sounded like, like Pee Wee, though. It did? See, that sounds like Pee Wee. That doesn't sound like Paul. No, that's... This is my real voice. Oh, very old. Oh, that seems yes. The crowd, yes. Very Cary Grant-like. Yeah. Now, well, can we just talk for a second about these other scripts that we might have seen? You know, the scripts that he had written for future Pee Wee movies? Because... I'm bummed that we didn't get to see the Pee Wee Herman story, right? It was a black comedy. It was like this idea that Pee Wee became famous as a singer. After making a hit single, he moves to Hollywood where he does everything wrong and becomes a big jerk, you know, and it's pretty much like the Valley of the Dolls. Um, But it was going to be a darker movie. And that was going to be a movie that he was going to shoot in like 2007, 
You know, he was also, like you mentioned this earlier, the Pee-wee's Playhouse movie, where it was going to be a road trip into Puppetland, which is kind of like that Wizard of Oz thing I was talking about there. It would kind of be reminiscent of H&R Puff and stuff and Wizard of Oz. Then there was going to be one that opens in prison. And he was going to, like, you know, maybe have, like, CGI to update the puppet's looks and do all this kind of cool stuff and maybe make an animated film like Polar Express with the performance capture. He was going to even have Johnny Depp play Pee-wee at one point and have Tim Burton direct it. Like, there were so many things that he was going to do that he never got a chance to do. No. Um, It's weird. Like, in January 2020, right before the pandemic started, he actually gave an interview where he said... You know, I think actors are going to be obsolete really quick, but scary times to say that now when we've been like dealing with the strike. But he said, part of me would love to sell the whole thing. That would include my digital scans, a couple of scripts, some other stuff. I don't for one second feel like I'm George Lucas or that Pee Wee Herman, the franchise is Star Wars, but it's worth something. And I feel like I could step away from it. So it's almost like he would have handed Pee Wee over to see where else that character could have gone. But you know, to I, kind you know, of give I it to if, the cosmos in some epic way. But I think if you give it to the cosmos, you get the James Brolin version of it. I don't know. Yeah. You know, like there, there is something about the limited version that we have of it. You know, it you need that kind of dogged, myopic point of view to create something like this. And I think that, the, you know, Tim Burton, him, Phil Hartman... Michael Varton, like he needed those voices. I don't think you can just put that in a machine. I don't think anything could be put through a machine like that. But uh, I'm glad that he will live on forever. And Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is, you know, he was Rex, uh, you know, Rex, one of the original pilots in the Star Tours ride. He now lives on as a DJ in the cantina. All the people who grew up with him, you know, whether it was Reno 911, they put him in, uh, you know, the movie Reno 911 Miami. Ben Stiller put him in Mystery Men. Like, there's a lot of these people who loved him and tried to work with him. You know, my friend Paul Rust made a movie with him, you know, and that yeah, was amazing. Him. And Judd Apatow and, like, all these people, like, you know, but maybe culture has moved on, too. And that's the other thing, too. It's it's tricky. You know, I talked earlier about, like, these characters, Dice Man and, and Pee Wee. And I'm also just remembering Ernest, right? You're talking about, like, oh, who wouldn't go out and do ads? It's like, as a culture, I wonder if we're now more accepting that like people can just be a character and get out of a character. But it, maybe there's something to the allure of Pee-wee that we kind of thought he was. We all kind of thought he was Pee-wee. Well, I mean, it's interesting if we could wind our way back to where he wanted to be in 1991 before the arrest, which is just like, I have shaped a generation and now I set forth to do my own thing. Because I love the idea that he lives on through that legacy of shaping Absolutely. people to think that it was okay to be weird. And he was really careful about the line of it. He wasn't saying be weird, that you have to be weird. But he was like, if you are, it's fine. And if you're not, it's fine. Like you can be anything you want to be. And I think there's something really progressive about that in the heart of a guy who also let his character act like a raging nerd who was mad all the time and like very pouty and needed things his way and expressed also negative parts about ourselves. You know, when we're like greedy or selfish or we're pouty, determined, like he had so many elements to him. And so that's why I think it's fascinating that like, you know, say Vincent can be for the New York times when, when Pee Wee big adventure comes out, he panned the hell out of it. He called it quote, the most barren comedy I've seen in years, maybe ever. It introduces motion picture audiences to a popular California comic named Pee Wee Herman, who seems to have put together his public personality by ransacking the wardrobes of his betters. Like Marcel Marceau, he appears to be physically slight and he often wears lipstick, but unfortunately he won't stop talking and worse, 
laughing at his own gags. Like Jacques Tati, he wears pants that are too short. And like Jerry Lewis, he behaves as if he were a child trapped inside the body of a man. Like them all, he wants desperately to be funny. But unlike them, he is not. And it's funny because like Tim Burton remembers the reviews being really, really bad. And that was, it was on a lot of worst films of the year list. And that somebody even rated it a minus one on a scale of one to 10. But when you look at them now, most of the ones I see in Rotten Tomatoes from the past are like, it was all great. You know, and some of them I think were really right. David Anson actually wrote something that I felt like he could just, you know, copy paste and put into his review of like Barbie. He called it, quote unquote, Mattel surrealism, a toy store fantasia in primary colors and 50s decor, a live action cartoon brash enough to appeal to little kids and yet so knee deep in irony that its faux naivete looks as chic as their latest retro fashions. I was like, well done, Anson. I've always liked Anson. Anson's (laughs) the best. One of the things I'd love to play maybe as we, as an outro, as we go is, you know, two months after the arrest, he's invited to open the MTV awards. And when he walks out on stage two months, two months into this, two months when people are like, his career's over, blah, 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 blah. All he gets is love and applause and people being like, thank you. And we're so happy that you're here. And like the love in that room is beautiful. So when we wrap up, that's what I'd kind of like to end on is well, hearing I, the love in that room. I love that. And I just will say also that if you want to see maybe a later version of Pee Wee Herman, because I think that, you know, it's kind of locked in an early amber. There is, you know, one more special and one more movie that were able to come out later in his career. That one, of course, is the uh, Pee Wee Herman show that they brought one back from Broadway, right? They had like a, a 2010 stage revival of the original show. Uh, they updated it and rewrote it so it has modern references, you know, internet, iPad. But it is kind of interesting to check out that. Like, you could see the 1981 version and you could see the 2010 version. To watch them back to back would be very interesting. And look, before we wrap up, we need to talk about Danny Elfman. The first collaboration between Elfman and Burton. A collaboration that Elfman did not want to do. Yeah, did not want to do. I mean, part of why he gets roped into this is because he had done, not just being in Oingo Boingo, but he had done the music for his brother's movie, this like kind of cult movie called Forbidden Zone. And Paul Rubens had seen that and been like, that, that score's great. I love it. It's weird. Woo! Also, you know, it's not like full on movie score. It's its own kind of surrealistic thing. It's not like doing music to a plot, to a narrative that has to be like for a big studio, which is why Elfman was kind of psyched out. He didn't know if he could do it. And what he kind of leaned on was he thought like, I'm going to think about the scores that inspire me. And one of the scores that he really thought of was the score for Eight and a Half, a movie that we also keep talking about doing someday on this. But the composer of that, Nina Rota, this is one of his major themes in that movie. Whoa. I mean, you hear it, right? Yes. You hear it, right? You hear it, and then you hear, well, th- here, the opening music, breakfast music. <laughs> I 
It's I didn't realize how similar they were. It's weird. I don't I don't know what happened when I saw eight and a half that I wasn't like, what? That's Pee-wee, because I would have seen that afterwards. Of course. I was not like a young child watching eight and a half. Who am I? I'm a real human being. But like the musical cues here in a way are like so homage You know, when his bike gets stolen, you absolutely hear Danny Elfman leaning into like the Bernard Herman of it all, the psycho of it all. <sighs> But even while he's maybe like using the great composers he loves as sort of his like gateway crutch, you could say, into learning how to write a score, which I mean, if you're going to like borrow, borrow from the best, he does. I love just the details in here. Like one of my favorite moments is like when Pee Wee has the breakthrough that Francis might know where his bike is, he storms up to his house. And the way you synergize score and action is phenomenal. Francis. Francis is busy. Busy doing what? He's having his bath. Oh, really? Where are they hosing him down? And so it makes sense to me that like right after this, basically, it goes from, hi, I'm Danny Elfman. I'm learning how to score. I'm going to borrow from the best to people being like, we're going to all knock off Danny Elfman. Like Danny Elfman becomes like the most knocked off composer I think of all time. And with great reason. And I'm glad that we didn't just get one collaboration of these three geniuses. We got two because I know we can't even get into this, but we did get Batman Returns with Paul Rubens as the father of the penguin. And we get the three of them on screen one more or or at least involved in the whole process one more time. Like that creative duo works together one more time, which I'm so happy with. And we get a theme there as well, which is so cool and creepy and, and wonderful. I mean, gosh, here I am about to become a big old nostalgic blubberball. But like, we've talked about this before on the show. I think that to me, the first auteur I ever knew was was Tim Burton, because you could recognize the look of him from film to film. The first director whose name I ever knew. And then I think probably Danny Elfman is the first composer I ever knew because they were yes. just so distinctive. And I'm realizing maybe maybe a lot of that is just that they were so distinctive. Maybe a lot of it is just my age where I was just old enough to realize humans made movies, kind of. But I just feel really lucky. I feel really, really lucky that I like was raised in a film culture shaped so much by these people, by these three people. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you're totally spot on. Like I remember buying a Danny Elfman soundtrack, and that might have been the first instrumental soundtrack I ever bought. And then it was like, you know, he was in a band. It was like, what? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. oingo, boingo, like so it was really amazing. The Simpsons, everything. It's really an amazing birth of so many people. And I, and I feel like, sadly, the, the one person who didn't get to have such an extensive career is Paul Rubens in that, in that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Probably the bigger one at the time and then doesn't get to, yeah. And don't get me started on the loss of Phil Hartman. I was out of the country when he died, so I didn't know he died for the longest time because oh it was gosh. like a pre-internet era. Yeah, another another ultimate tragedy of somebody who also did not get to have a full career that I think he would be doing so many interesting things right now as well. Well, this has been such a fun episode that there is a tiny, tiny tear in my eye that I'm not going to get to talk to Paul for a week because 
He's going off on tour with his other really cool podcast that's super cool and full of other really cool people talking about super cool movies and whatever. But while Paul is off seeing America and maybe seeing the faces of some people listening to this show right now, we're going to have a special guest, the podcaster that I completely fangirl out about, Jamie Loftus. I mean, if you have yet to listen to Jamie Loftus's podcasts like The Lolita Show, the show about Menza, the show about the comic strip Kathy. Eck, you are in for such a treat. She's also the co-host of the Bechtel cast. She's also the author of a book that just came out and has been scandalizing the nation. It's called Raw Dog on the History of Hot Dogs. But we're not going to talk actually about any of all of that. That's just a build up to Jamie and why I totally worship, adore, nerd out about this person constantly. Jamie is exactly the right person that I want to bring into the studio to talk about the sensation of the summer. Yes, Jamie and I are going to talk about Barbie, and we're going to talk about Oppenheimer. We're going to go full Oppenheimer. Will I wear my signature Barbenheimer shirt that I bought on Etsy? Yes, I just have to put it in the laundry right now, so I'll be ready and groomed and ready for Jamie to enter the studio. But this will be wonderful. Please join us next week. We're going to have such a blast getting into the whole atomic Barbie girl catastrophe that has just lit up the entire summer. And on that note, I'm going to leave you with the rapturous MTV Awards reception for Paul Rubens. And I just want you to picture this performer standing on stage, surrounded by people just cheering, cheering, absolutely losing their mind, kind of wanting the moment to end so he can say the joke that he prepared and has been so ready to blurt out, but also... Needing this applause. And it's really nice to see him get that big, big, big round of applause. So use your imagination for it. And let's just listen to some love in the room for Paul Rubens. Ladies and gentlemen, MTV is proud to introduce someone who has been a friend for a long time. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, see the official API list of Unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. <laughs>